Seven more shopping days, is it? I still say, December 24th, perfect day to shop. Don't waste your time. Your adrenaline's running. Everybody feels sorry for you. Just don't let her catch you out there at that hour, shopping for her. Yes, sir. A, I don't know if you heard the story. It was, apparently, this is a true story. There were a couple of women shopping, you know, in their favorite store. And there over in the corner of that store, there was a little crash, a little manger scene. And one said to the other, there you have it, those Christians again, horning in on Christmas. Uh, that's the way most people feel. But we know that's not the truth. Uh, this morning, we are turning to Galatians chapter 3. And... Uh, Very interesting, the first two chapters, Paul has presented uh, himself as a legitimate apostle, a legitimate messenger from the Lord with, with a unique message with which we must not tamper. And he's kind of laid down the law, if you will. He's, he's, uh, which is an ironic thing to say because he's, the law here is the gospel as opposed to works of the law. And he's laid down his proposition especially in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2, as we saw. And he's begun to prove it. And when we come to chapters 3 and 4, he's going to make some major arguments that underpin this whole idea of our being justified before God's holy throne uh, simply by our faith in the work of Jesus Christ alone, not by any work that we do. That, that's his basic premise. And in chapters 3 and 4, he goes through some really lovely and very helpful foundational arguments that we need to master. Uh, We need rather to be mastered by them in these coming weeks after Christmas. But today we begin with the first part of his arguments. Very interesting. Let me tell you why. Uh, The Christian life uh, is made up of both doctrine and experience. And a lot of us would tend to emphasize one over the other. And I suspect if I were to cut a mean in this class or an average, most of us would tend to emphasize doctrine more than we would experience. But there are some of you that would emphasize experience over doctrine. Usually Christian groups err on one side or the other. And, of course, it's obvious where Presbyterians err. It's on the doctrine side to the exclusion of experience. Some others, maybe uh, those of you with a, a Pentecost, in a Pentecostal tradition might say, well, we, we tend to err more on the experience side uh, rather than on the doctrinal side. But the Christian faith is, the Christian life is made up of both. And they both are extremely important. And what's interesting in chapters 3 and 4, I think having studied the Apostle Paul already this fall, we would expect that he would start with doctrine. And as a matter of fact, I think he normally does. But in this presentation, he starts just the other way. We will see in these first five verses, before he gets to verse 6 and starts to launch off on his doctrinal uh, arguments, that the first five verses consist of an experiential argument. He's basically saying you know better because you've had experience. And it just reminds us how important the Christian experience is. <clears throat> and this morning we need to know what it is. What is the experience that we're supposed to have? It's, it's unfortunate that most men who, are, who, who kind of intuitively know that this is supposed to involve my emotions somehow, 
even though I don't, I don't know what emotions are and I have a hard time labeling them all that. So many men struggle with, with emo, the, the emotional side of their lives. But we, we intuitively know that something is supposed to be engaged here in our Christian experience. What often happens is we experience it vicariously. Uh, you know, we, we could be, uh, maybe we enjoy the choir, you know, in the way they really sing out or we enjoy the preacher who gets all fired up about the message or we appreciate our mother, you know, we sat next to who would sometimes uh, shed a tear uh, during the midst of worshiping God. And we, that becomes our experience. We, we're kind of experiencing it through other people. Or sometimes it can be like this. Sometimes men will have kids uh, in the youth group and those kids are really on fire. And so the, the, the guy is excited because his own kids are excited. And then those kids go off to college and then they go off and pretty soon the guy's spiritual life starts to, to wane. I, I've seen it happen when even kids come through youth group. They can get really excited about youth group. And they go off to college and they just lose it all. Why? Because... Their experience was based either on something vicarious or it wasn't really a uniquely Christian experience. It was a religious experience. Let me give you another example. During this season of the year, I mean, I look forward to this every year. I mean, the lights and the trees and the Advent wreaths. And, you know, for those of you who worship here, our sanctuary is just alive aesthetically. And the choral music, I mean, every night this month, every Sunday night this month, our choir has been doing something, either a children's choir or adult choir, and it'll be again this Sunday night. And then Christmas Eve, I mean, those of us in our churches who have Christmas Eve services, we look forward to those. And there's a mystical quality to those times during Advent and Christmas. And I, I, I love those things. I think they're important. But for some people, their Christian experience consists of those nostalgic moments of seasonal blessing in the church, the sentimental attachment to the carols and the decorations and the enthusiasm of other people, the aesthetic of the season. The same could be said for Easter or some other thing that goes on where we, we find that our <clears throat> Christian experience actually consists of either sentimentality, nostalgia, or vicarious experience. Now, once again, I think vicarious experiences are important. I remember singing next to my grandmother and my parents, and that brings back tremendous blessing to me just to recall those things as a child in church. Nothing wrong with that unless... That becomes the heart of my Christian experience. There's nothing wrong with the aesthetics, the beautiful music and the wonderful decorations. Those are, those are appropriate unless that becomes a substitute for genuine Christian experience. So, and I know this from experience, that I had those sentimental attachments and I'm grateful for them. Because those sentimental attachments are what led me back to the sanctuary of God in my mid-twenties. Something was missing in my life. I had a sentimental attachment historically. And I went back to where those attachments were. And there, gentlemen, eventually had a personal experience. Not a vicarious one. And not an experience based on mere aesthetics. 
It was a personal encounter with someone so that I have my own experience. So I think, as a matter of fact, rearing children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, there ought to be all kinds of attachments, aesthetic attachments, historical attachments, even vicarious attachments. Because who knows how the Lord may use those things in the future as he did in my life. But ultimately, what the apostle is saying, there is a personal experience that has to do with your own relationship with the Creator, not just with the aesthetics of the church or with the experience of somebody else, that you ultimately then build your life on. And these experiences are extremely important. But they're especially, it's especially important that you have the right experience. So let's look at this text with that in view because there are two fundamental experiences in your relationship with God that have to be in place. And once they're in place, you can appeal to those experiences over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, those experiences, as we see in Galatians chapter 3, become part of the foundation of your faith. So that your faith is not just objective, it's subjective. It's not just something in which you believe, it's something that's in you. It's both. Both and, not either or. So we should be men who have doctrine and who know doctrine. Uh, And we should be men who have experience and continue to have it. And let's be sure we know what those are. Well, let's look at the text then. This would be Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Let's look at it through those lenses. Paul says to these Galatians, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Okay, there are two key mysteries to the Christian life. Both of them, notice are received by faith. Two experiences which are two, founded on two mysteries, both of them experienced through faith, not by works of the law. The first one is this in verse 1. Christ crucified has been presented to us. Christ crucified has been presented to us. This is the first mystery. Christ crucified for us. And the world may look and wonder, how can a dead Jew on a tree somewhere give me eternal life? It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? How can a dead Jew 2,000 years ago on a tree give you eternal life? Well, what the Apostle Paul is saying is this dead Jew was the Messiah who was fully God and fully man. And this dead Jew was the Lamb of God, God's appointed atoning sacrifice. That's what makes it effective for you is that it was God's appointed sacrifice in your place so that you wouldn't die and this lamb died in your place and this lamb happened to be the son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, 
Not only is he a human being, which means he qualifies as a full, satisfactory substitute for you, but he is fully God, which means he can die not just for you, but for your brothers and sisters around the world and through the ages. He can die for an infinite number of people because of the infinite value of his sacrifice because he is the Son of God. So this is not just some dead Jew who accidentally dies on a cross for political insurrection. This is an appointed Lamb of God for us. And what Paul has been arguing in the first two chapters is simply by taking a look at him and simply by trusting in him, simply by receiving that atoning sacrifice on your behalf, you are found acceptable before God. That's what he's been claiming. And he's saying to these Galatians, uh, as J.B. Phillips interprets verse 3, he says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. (laughs) Here's what Paul is saying. You've been turning to certain works of the law. In this case, it was circumcision, plus some other things, but primarily circumcision. You've been saying that that's necessary. You've been, if you say that anything is necessary to be added to the cross of Christ, you have committed high treason against Christ because he claims that what he has done is fully satisfactory to the Father. When he died, he says, it is finished. It's done. The payment is made. So you're going to add your two cents worth? Back off. Stand back and lift up holy hands and worship the one whose satisfactory sacrifice was completed in your stead and worship him. Add nothing. To try to add something is high treason. Not only that, Paul says here, you're foolish. You're an idiot. (laughs) This is the height of falling. You've heard of the cross of Christ. You've heard that it's a complete sacrifice. Why would you try to add to it? It's so foolish. And then thirdly, it's not only treason and tomfoolery. This is demonic. Who has bewitched you? Now he knows who's bewitched them. It's the Judaizers. But notice that he's calling this witchcraft. Who's bewitched you? You people who believed in the gospel. Did you not have a personal experience of this? Now, notice Paul is saying, I'm going to appeal to your experience first of all because I know when you receive the gospel, something happens to you by experience. And I'm going to talk to you first of all about your own experience that you're betrayed. It's kind of like questioning the loyalty of your mother. I mean, just think about that. I mean, it's hard for me to even say that. I mean, I I hope my mother doesn't get this tape. Can you imagine such a thing? Questioning the loyalty of your mother or questioning your love for your own infant. And just yesterday, I had my second grandchild come into the world. I'm sitting here holding this little rat. You know, this thing, you know, six pounds, six ounces, just nothing, you know. And you want to question my loyalty to that little girl? (laughs) There's an experience. There's a bonding, isn't there? And here's what Paul is saying. When you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for you, there's a bonding. Now, here is the heart of the Christian experience. Look at it. It's not the decorations on the wall. It's not the Christmas tree. It's not the carols. It's not the Easter hymns. It is that Christ was presented to you. That's what he says here. The word present is like placarding. Christ crucified has been placarded to you. 
Christ crucified has been preached to you. You want to know where the heart of Christian experience is? Is having the gospel of Christ crucified proclaimed to your face and to your ears and to your heart. And you receive that. And there is the foundation of your experience. And to do anything, says the Apostle Paul, that would contradict that thing, that mystery that you have experienced is idiotic. And, and it is demonic. So he first of all appear, appeals to that experience of the cross. Well, maybe you, you've not experienced it or maybe you're not sure you've experienced it. Let me, let me just give you a great illustration of how it's experienced. I don't know how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. But Pilgrim's Progress, it's about the pilgrim. And the pilgrim starts off, he's got a big problem in his life. He wants to be delivered, and he makes his way eventually to the celestial city, and it's an allegory. And Bunyan just, you know, this is 400 years ago, does a masterful job of describing this journey that, that Pilgrim is on until he finally gets to the celestial city. And in that journey, he faces all the things that we face. Now, the first thing that happens to, uh, to Pilgrim when he starts his journey is he goes to, to Mount Sinai, and there he learns how bad a sinner he is. And as soon as he learns that, he gets this huge burden on his back. So now he's carrying around this burden. It's the burden of the law. It's the burden of having to match up to, the, to God's standard. So he's carrying this burden around. And then as the story goes, here's what Bunyan says. Bunyan says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall. And the wall was called Salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked therefore and looked again even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now he stood looking and weeping. Behold, three shining ones, shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bid him look on as he ran, and that he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing. Listen to the song. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss. 
must hear the burden fall from off my back, must hear the strings that bound it to me crack. Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Here's the experience. He simply, with this load on his back, he comes to a place somewhat ascending. He comes to the cross. And as he looks upon the cross and simply trusts what Christ has done for him, that burden of damnation, that burden of performance, uh, the, the demand for works of the law, that burden of being a crummy sinner, that burden fell off his back and disappeared into the sepulcher of Christ. And then having received the gift of sins forgiven and the clothing of Christ's righteousness and a title deed on the celestial city itself, he makes his way and he makes his way singing. And what does he sing about? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. He has been bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. His affections are taken up with Christ. Do you think anything could come between Pilgrim and the man who died for him on that cross? Do you think anything would separate him from his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ after he had already begun to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms devolving upon him because he had simply put his trust in Christ? Paul says, who's bewitched you? So you see, Christian experience is vital to us. Being bound to him in our affections is vital to us. And so often when people think of Christian experience, they think of preachers who are shouting, congregants who are dancing and hanging off the chandeliers. And as a matter of fact, I love all that stuff. But that's not Christian experience. That's a response to Christian experience. Christian experience is receiving what Christ has done for us. And then all of us with our differing personalities and differing denominational traditions, we respond in different ways. But the thing that's in common with our response is that we've had a Christian experience of the cross. And therefore, we must respond in some way. And some people replace Christian experience with the church response to Christian experience, and they think then they've had Christian experience. And they love to go to church to have an experience. But the experience is not the mystery experience of Christ. It's the experience of the church responding to that mystery. And therefore, they never get the mystery. You with me? This is called nominalism. It's people who have certain attachments, and maybe your attachment to the church has been this substitutionary attachment. It's vicarious, or it's sentimental, or it's nostalgic, or it's ritual. It's not the real experience. When you've had this experience, you have the response of pilgrim who can do nothing but praise the Lord. And Paul says, now folks, look at me. That's the experience you had because you had Christ crucified preached to you and you received Him. So he's appealing to the foundation of their faith. Now that's the first mystery. It's in verse 1. The mystery of Christ crucified in the place of sinners. That's a mystery. It's, it's miraculous. It's divine. It's a gift. And we've received it and it has bound us to Him. Now there's a second bonding mystery, a second bonding experience for the Christian that is vital and is just as vital. Now, the cross is the center of the universe. It's the center of the theological universe. But there's another essential experience. Now, let's, in, let's look at it in verses 2 through 5. It's this. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. It's the 
mystery. Here's what Paul calls it in Colossians chapter 1. As a matter of fact, why don't we just turn there? Go over a few pages in your Bible. This would be um, page 1920 uh, or 1930. Paul says, verse 24, now I rejoice, this is Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of uh, God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery, there's the word, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. So you see, the Christian mystery was hidden now it's publicly proclaimed. Unlike the pagan mysteries, they were kept secret. This mystery is public. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And here's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's the mystery. So it's not only Christ for me in the cross, it is Christ in me, living his life through me. Now, this is the key to the Christian life. We'll be talking more about that. But this gospel of Jesus Christ is not something just externally uh, done for us and externally proclaimed by the preacher to our ears. This is something that's experienced inside the believer. It's very intimate. It's very deep. It's very profound. And it produces an unbreakable bond. A marriage, an eternal marriage of which there is no divorce between us and the Lord. So let's look at it. First of all, he says in verse 1 that we receive this spirit by faith. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Because if they answer this, all of his other problems are solved. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now he's making an appeal, you know, for, for faith alone. He's making an appeal for trusting in Jesus Christ for our righteousness. And now he's going off a little bit on a tangent. He's saying, look, let's not only talk about Christ crucified, let's talk about your experience of the Holy Spirit. How did the Spirit come to you? Did the Spirit infuse your life when you started to do certain things, like when you got circumcised or when when you obeyed certain laws of the Lord? Did the Spirit come to you then? No. He says, you know well as well as I do. The Spirit began to take up residence in your heart when you trusted Him. And so He's making an argument for justification by faith by simply talking to us about the Spirit. And here we're learning that we receive the Spirit by faith. Now let's look at two components of this. First of all, we must receive Him. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about it. Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without wind or chariots without horses. Like branches without sap, we are withered. Like coals without fire, we are useless. As an offering without the sacrificial flame, we are unacceptable. Without the Spirit, then there is no Christian life and there is no salvation. Let's look at some examples. Turn back in your Bibles, first of all, to John chapter 3 where Jesus teaches on this matter. This is page 1703. John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless 
He is born again or uh, literally born from above. That's what the Greek word is. So he says no one can see the kingdom, much less enter it. But no one can even see it unless he gets born from above. Well, Nicodemus doesn't understand this. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? That's a really good question. <laughs> Some of you are really old. <laughs> your, your birth took place a long time ago, so how are you going to handle that? And look what Nicodemus, how he further explicates his question here. He says, surely he cannot enter a second time to his mother's womb to be born. Duh! <laughs> Jesus, what are you saying? Go back in my mother's womb? What if my mother's dead? What do I do then? Jesus answers, um, Nicodemus, you're an idiot. No, he doesn't say that. He says very patiently and lovingly, and I think Nicodemus eventually becomes a believer, but Jesus says to him, verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh, that is your mother, gives birth to a child. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus continues to complain. He says, you're Israel's teacher. You're a teacher of the Bible and you don't understand this. You must be born from above. You must be born from above. And that, uh, that commandment has echoed through the ages. You must be born again. Well, uh, turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 19 and you'll see how some people actually hear the gospel of Christ crucified and they actually join the church and they're numbered among Christians and they still haven't experienced what Paul is talking about. Look at Acts 19. When Paul goes to Ephesus, this is on page 1789. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> so Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Oh. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. And I tell you, I think there are lots of people in the church today who have John's baptism. That you must believe in the doctrine of Christianity. Or you must believe in the hypostatic union of deity and humanity in Jesus Christ. You must believe that he was the Son of God. You must believe he was born of a virgin. You must believe that he died on the cross for sinners. And you believe that. But there's been no personal bonding inwardly, spiritually, between you and the Father. And you have John, John the Baptist's baptism. When you have Jesus' baptism, you're baptized into Christ and you're baptized by the Spirit into the very life of the Trinity, brothers. 
Now, that's a baptism that nothing can, can simulate. That's a baptism that nothing can counterfeit. That's a baptism that, that bonds you forever to the Father. Now, this is what Paul is talking about. It's what those brothers in Ephesus finally got. They hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. And they hadn't opened their hearts to him. They hadn't believed him because they didn't know that he would take up residence in their hearts. But he does. And you'll see other verses here. Romans 8, for example, we won't turn to it. But there, as well as in 1 John, this is all the apostles talk about this. How unless we have the Spirit of God, we don't belong to God. So that we've really not been converted. We've really not been sealed. Now, uh, considering this matter of sealing, turn to Ephesians, just beyond Galatians, the next book over. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And when Paul talks about our salvation, he talks about the Father electing us. He talks about Jesus Christ redeeming us by His blood. And then look at the work of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. This is Ephesians 1, 13, page 1905. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. So the Holy Spirit seals us, guarantees our arrival safely in heaven itself. We're sealed with an unbreakable seal. That's the work of the Spirit in us. That's what bonds us to Him and gives us the confidence to walk in a wicked world and know that we'll not be destroyed in it because of the seal. And that seal is an earnest or a down payment. So God has already made a down payment on on your house, and you're the house. And so He's going to own you. He does own you. He's already put Himself in you as a down payment because one day you'll get the absolute fullness of His redeeming power and His spiritual presence in your life. Now you have a down payment. It's real. And it's an experience. And we need to open our hearts to experience. Some of you were abandoned as a child or you're abused as a child or you never got along with your father and you, your emotions began to shut down. That's, just, that's a very explain, uh, explainable sort of coping mechanism. You just shut down some emotions. You don't know how to deal with them and you're just going to grit your teeth and move forward. Gentlemen, you need to be healed because there's a father in heaven that really loves you and would never abandon you and with whom you are supposed to have a vital relationship where communications are going back and forth. Now, don't compare yourself to someone who had a nurturing, loving, always present father, always played golf with him and you know, forgave him all of his sins, never said an ugly word to him. Don't compare yourself to somebody like that because that person has a different starting point than you may have. You start where you are. And you say, Lord, I want to be healed on the track you want me on. And you begin to ask him to heal you so that you can feel. You can begin to feel. Maybe not as much as your, your brother sitting next to you, but you can begin to feel the love of the Father. And that's what Paul's appealing to here. He's saying, are you idiots? Did you not receive the Spirit by simply trusting in him? And he came rushing down upon you and filled your life and bound you to your Father? Are you crazy? It's kind of like... Treason against your own father. He says, dude, don't you share my DNA? Where, where, where did Wilson, do you think you got that nose? You know, do you realize there are some very old people who have a nose like this? Actually, one of them's already gone to heaven, but, you know, that's where I got my nose, from my parents and my big feet and my idiotic sense of humor and other things. 
came from my dad. The only difference between me and my dad is he told dirty jokes and I tried to tell clean ones. But, <laughs> but, but where did this all come from? Don't you realize you, you belong to us? Why are you acting like as though you have no commitment to the Wilson family? Don't you know you came right from us? That's what the Father is saying to you. Don't you know you share my DNA? Don't you know you're, you're my son? You're in my, the family business and I'm giving it all over to you? And you're acting like this, like, like you're a competitor of the family business? What are you thinking? That's the treason and the idiocy and the, the witchcraft of what Paul says is going on in their own hearts as they abandon this great mystery. So we receive the Spirit by faith because we must receive Him. And notice secondly under that point that we receive Him by faith and not by works. This is the main point he's making. Now, if you'll turn, for example, to Acts chapter 2, and this is at Pentecost, Peter has, uh, you know, they've received the Holy Spirit, I'll say. They've received the Holy Spirit in power. Spirit came down upon them, and there were tongues of, uh, of fire, flaming fire on their heads. And then they began to speak in languages they hadn't studied. Boy, I always, always prayed that would happen in my high school French class, and it never did. <laughs> Just prayed for tongues, you know. So it doesn't happen to a student who's trying to pass an exam, but it happened to these people so that they could communicate the gospel in every language that had assembled, every language group that had assembled in Jerusalem so they could all hear the gospel. And God just gave them linguistic skill for which they had not prepared academically. So, I mean, there was dramatic evidence of the presence of something. And here's what the people thought it was. You guys are drunk. And it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, I know a few of you are able to pull that off, but, I mean, to be drunk at 9 in the morning, that's, that's heavy drinking. But Peter says, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what happened. The Jesus Christ that you crucified a few weeks ago, He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord of the universe. And He and the Father together have poured down this blessing that you now are witnessing. It's the power of the Spirit of God. Well, they were cut to the heart. And they said, tell us, what must we do to be saved? That is, we've crucified the Lord's Messiah? Can there be any greater wickedness on the face of the earth? Can there be any crime for which God will punish a sin more than that one? How can we be saved? Brothers, tell us how to be saved from the terrible mess that we're in, that our sins have put him to death, just like our sins have put him to death. We just don't have enough sense to cry out. These people did. Tell us, what must we do to be saved? And look at verse 38. Peter tells him exactly what to do to be saved. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And look at this next sentence. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How? By true repentance. And you can exchange the words repent and, and, and believe. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentant belief or believing repentance. Elsewhere, when Paul's talking to the Philippian jailer, he doesn't say repent and be baptized. He says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same thing. So simply by repentance and faith, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what happened in Galatia. Paul had preached Jesus Christ crucified, had told them to receive the Holy Spirit. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed in the gospel. They believed in the Holy Spirit. They believed in God's promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit came and filled their hearts. And Paul simply reminded them. Now, remind me. Would you just tell me one thing? How did you receive the Spirit? 
Was it through these ritual things that you're supposed to do and all these little rules of the church and all the laws, the 613 laws in the Old Testament, by keeping those, is that how you got the Holy Spirit? Or was it one day when you had the gospel preached to you, you believed it, and you prayed to receive Christ and the Spirit, and the Spirit came into your life? You tell me which one of those two. And in asking that question, he reminds us of the reality of it. And look at the beautiful little diagram I put here at the bottom. Uh, that little picture right there. Robert Taylor, that's you. No, I'm just teasing. There it is. Look at the two paths you can choose. Paul's saying faith in the gospel or works of the law. Faith in the gospel leads to salvation and to every spiritual blessing. And those blessings that he enumerates for us here anyway are justification before God, life, and filling of the Spirit. Or you can go the works of the law route, which will ultimately end in failure. You may... Play games with yourself and try to convince yourself you're doing well, but you're failing because you're falling short of your own standard for works of the law. And there's a curse that comes with that. Cursed is, is the one who seeks to, to uh, obey the law because the law will curse you. And that's what drives us to Christ. And that leads to condemnation, death, and abandonment. It's a pretty miserable life. So Paul says, which of those got you the blessing of the Spirit? And obviously it's the higher road. As the old phrase goes, run, 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 the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Uh, the gospel brings us sweeter things, bids us fly, and gives us wings. So the law demands that you run, but doesn't give you any capacity even to run. The gospel actually bids you to do more than run. It says, all right, take up and fly. You say, fly? How am I going to fly? I'm not a bird. Oh, you're a butterfly. And the gospel gives you wings and you soar by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're doing the flying. You're flying. It's you flying. But let me ask you, if you catch a guy in Amen Bible study flying, does that tell you that he's had some help from another place? <laughs> I believe it does. And that's exactly what that little saying is telling us. And that's what Paul is telling them. You, re you must receive the Spirit and you did so by faith. Now, secondly, look at verse 3. We continue in the Spirit by faith. This is B. We continue in the Spirit by faith. So we start in the Spirit, we begin our Christian life in the Spirit, and we continue our Christian life by the Spirit through faith. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? The word there is flesh. Are you going to... You began in the Spirit. Now you're going to finish out by the flesh? I find men doing this all the time. We all know that at some point in your life, you need to receive Jesus Christ consciously, receiving Him as your Savior and Lord. You need to receive the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross for your sake so that you admit you are a sinner, you're under the damnation of God without, unless He helps you, and there Christ has been damned in your place. And you receive that gift. And then you also receive the perfect righteousness of Christ in your account. We all know that we need to do that. And then after we've done that, we say, okay, now... It's your duty to take it from here. Now, we don't put it crassly in that many words, but there are a lot of churches that basically sort of teach that. Now you got saved. Now what are you going to do? It's up to you now to respond appropriately. Here's what Paul is saying. It's up to you to trust in the work of the Holy Spirit just as much or more than you trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation in the first place. It's all by faith. You don't start by faith and end by your own effort. You start by faith, you continue by faith, and you'll go all the way to glory by faith. 
And then your faith will be exchanged for sight. And then you will have intuitive, righteous hearts. And you will by nature be obedient. But until then, you live, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we live not by sight, we live by faith, not by sight. We live that way, we walk that way every day. So every time you commit a sin, you're trusting in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. Every time you're wondering, how am I going to go home and love that woman when she's withholding from me certain things I'd really like to have in my marriage? You're trusting the Holy Spirit to come into your life and enable you to be a loving and faithful husband who doesn't depend upon her performance for your response to the Lord because you're not primarily responding to her anyway. You're responding to Him. It's a life by faith. You're trusting Him. And as you see your finances dissolve, And you're thinking, how am I going to eat? How am I going to live? How am I going to keep from being ashamed of myself and all the rest? You're trusting by faith. What are you trusting? You're trusting the promise that you're as rich, as stinking rich as you could possibly imagine and more. It's just that you're a child who's awaiting his inheritance. And one day you're going to get the whole thing. So why should you be discouraged and down in the mouth and act like poor old victim me? You know, he just gets beat up. Nothing ever happens right. No, by faith, you're living as a triumphant Christian. So we constantly live by faith in every aspect of our life. That's what the apostle is teaching here. Are you so foolish that once you were presented Christ and you were presented the power of the Spirit and you received Him, now you're going to revert to some other way of living? Are you crazy? Are you idiots, he's saying? You foolish Galatians. And we looked at Romans 7 last time, and I just commend that to you again. Romans 7 shows you the frustration of reversion to living by obedience to the law in a fleshly manner. He says the old way of law obedience is gone. The new way of the Spirit has replaced it. Now the new way of the Spirit actually enables you to come back to the law and benefit from the law and live in accordance with the law. Not perfectly, but genuinely and repentantly. And we'll talk about that later in Galatians where the law comes into play. So we're saying it's not works of the law for our justification, but it does lead us to obey the law. We'll get to that later. But now he's saying, look, we must continue in the Spirit by faith. Now, C, we persevere through suffering by faith. Once again, you can see he's still appealing to Christian experience. Look at verse 4. Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? And you'll find this this sort of theme throughout uh, the book of Galatians. For example, let me give you three other places in Galatians. You might want to write these down. Galatians 4.29. If you'll look there, you'll see the apostle uh, says, uh, At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. That is, Ishmael persecuted Isaac. It is the same now. What's he saying? Well, we'll see later in this argument. He says that those who are trying to live according to the law are really not the children of Isaac. They're the children of Ishmael, which is really interesting since this was written about 600 years before the establishment of Islam, that he's saying those who live this way live according to the performance of works of the law, they're the Muslims. Uh, he, obviously, Muslims didn't exist at this point. But he's saying they're the children of Ishmael. He says, and those children 
persecute the people who live by faith. Is this strange or what? We'll get to this later in chapter 4. And it's not because he was prophesying about future religious groups at war with each other. That's accidental to the text. What he's saying in the text is, by their very nature, people who are performance-oriented persecute people who are faith-oriented. People who work by acts of the flesh persecute people who trust in the work of the Spirit. And he said, that's the reason you're being persecuted. So now, you want to switch sides? (laughs) That's what he's saying. You've been persecuted by these people. And now you want to become part of them and persecute other people who now trust in the Spirit instead of works of the law? And then look at, uh, from verse 429, look at 511. He says something very similar. He says, brothers, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. He says, if anybody would accuse me of preaching circumcision, i got a big question for you. Why are those circumcisers persecuting me? It's because I'm preaching something other than ritual performance according to uh, church standards and Judaistic standards and so on. He said, I'm being persecuted for it. And then lastly, turn to chapter 6 and look at verse 11 or verse 12. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly, that would be the circumcisers, are trying to compel you to be circumcised. And the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's saying those who trust in the cross and those who trust in the work of the Spirit, those who simply trust, are being persecuted by those who want you to do a bunch of things. And they'll put the guilt trip on you and then persecute you for not doing it. So back to our text now. He's saying, don't you understand that you've suffered for something? You've suffered for the cross of Christ. So now why are you going to switch sides? Paul later on says, don't bother me with that circumcision stuff. I'm already marked. And he says, I've been marked by the cross. We'll see that later in chapter 6. So have you suffered for nothing? If it really was for nothing, we persevere through suffering by faith. Now lastly, In Paul's argument of our experience, he says, we experience the Spirit's power by faith. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Paul is saying, look, uh, obviously when he was in Galatia, he worked some miracles. I don't know what they were. But he's saying, now you saw these things. Let me ask you. Did that come because all of us together decided to be circumcised? Or all of us decided that we're going to be not only Christians, but we're also going to be Jews and keep all the traditions? Is that how those miracles took place? Or he says, did you experience the power of God because you put your trust in Him? Which of those happened? And what Paul is saying is when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you put your trust in the Holy Spirit to work the Christian life through you and apply to you the redeeming uh, work of Jesus Christ. When you trust Him to do that, there's tremendous power in your life. And that's part of the bonding relationship you have with the Father. Have you not had this happen? I remember shortly after I became a Christian. Shortly. And I, well, before that, I, I told dirty jokes with my dad too. I mean, we, we, had, we were on the same team there. And I did more than that. I did a lot of bad things. And then I became a Christian in my mid-20s. And I'll still remember to this day, a small little episode. 
It just stood in my head as a, as a, a mark in my life. I was sitting there working on a very old house that I lived in, with, that we bought, our first house. And it had a window, in, in, I don't even know what you call it, but in the sash there are these weights, counterweights that help the window lift up. They're hidden because they're back behind the frame of the window, these weights that drop down. Well, the little rope that connected the weight uh, comes up and it, it, it attaches to the window so the weight will drop and the window will raise. That thing broke while my head was under the window, which produced a big boo-boo on my head and a lot of pain. Now, when things like that happen in my life, I've got a, a pretty good string of words that go with that that express my total frustration at this pain. And I was, I was very good at it. I mean, I had some really choice words. And when that window hit my head, I fell back and I saw stars. And certain thoughts went through my head, and I just sat there. I said, Lord, help me. And then about 10 minutes later, I said, now that was an amazing experience. I looked back and I thought, I didn't say one crappy word during that whole experience. And I was amazed. And what it, it, was, it was miraculous. <laughs> it really was. Because something had become intuitive to me that never before was intuitive. And the Lord was changing my heart. Now, that's a very small little thing. But there are other things that are much larger I won't go into, but that we begin to experience simply by faith. And Paul is saying, now, did that happen to you because you were keeping the rule book? Or was it because you perceived that Christ had done something for you that was so phenomenal, so extraordinary, that you would never want to betray him? You were in love with him. That's what it is. It's the bands of love and gratitude. And furthermore, it's not only your human response to him in gratitude, it's a divinely inspired response because he himself, like a hand in a glove, is working through you. That's what's happening, gentlemen. And that's Paul's first argument for our faithful relationship with the Lord. It's personal experience. And you can look in the Old Testament and you'll see some wonderful examples when David defeats Goliath, or when Jehoshaphat has the Ammonites and the Moabites attacking him, and the Lord just says, stand still still, and see the work of the Lord. The battle is the Lord's. He says, you just stand still. And Jehoshaphat stands still, and all these thousands and hundreds of thousands of Moabites and Ammonites, they end up killing each other. You know what they're doing? You know what Jehoshaphat's doing? He's just singing. He's just singing to the Lord. He's just worshiping him. He's just praising the Lord. And that's the reason they called that very place Barakah, praise. Just let your life be Barakah, just a place of praise, because you're able to watch and experience the Lord working through you. Let's pray together. Father, we are deeply thankful for these two great mysteries and some of us in this room are saying, I just really wish I could experience that more deeply. Lord, give us a holy discontent, but also a holy contentment, knowing that uh, with all of our wounds and scars, sometimes we can only feel so much and that our healing is really left to you. But with the measure of healing you've given us, help us to engage our hearts with you and to experience anew the bonding with you that we have 
so that when things alien to the gospel come our way, we immediately label them as insurrectionist, as treasonous, as foolishness, and as the height of demonic rebellion so that we, your sons, remain faithful to you. This is our prayer. And we make it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Amen. God bless you all.